Everybody doing okay this morning? Good? <laughs> All right. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and do two things before we start. One, um, and always, people always tell me not to do this, but I'm going to do it anyways because I care too much about how you guys think about me. I'm going to apologize because um, I'll probably just get off on some tangents today because I did last night. So I assume, you know, since I'm teaching the same lesson, I'll probably do it today as well. So um, forgive me in advance. And here's why I ask for your forgiveness. Because sometimes when I get on these tangents about how, how awful things are, it's not you because, I mean, you're here, right? So like you're making the effort to be in church and to hear the word of God and grow in your faith. So uh, I feel bad sometimes because I'm, I'm up here ranting and railing and flailing my arms and throwing stuff. And I'm like, these aren't the people that need to be yelled at. You know, these are, these are the ones who are here. So forgive me for that. Uh, the second thing is I'm going to tell you a fun story because, you know, there's no more fun after this story. The rest of it is just really depressing. But uh, I'll tell you a fun story real quick. So <laughs> ever since this COVID thing has happened, all my pants have shrank, right? I haven't gotten any bigger. I refuse to believe that. Just all my clothes keep getting smaller. And um, last night, I'm standing right over there. I can't believe I'm telling you guys this, but I, just, I kind of don't care anymore. So um, my pants were so tight. I'm like, maybe I can get away with just having the top button undone, my belt secure, right? It's just giving me that little bit of leeway there, you know, that extra inch or whatever it was, just, you know, so I can breathe. And I'm standing, I'm literally standing over here at the five with the top button unbuttoned. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, this is not the time to try this when you're on a stage, right? And you got a bunch of people in front of you and you're, you're on, you know, YouTube and, and Facebook. I'm like, this is dumb, Corey. And uh, so I told Jonathan, my assistant, I'm like, I'm, I'm going to go outside for a second. I'm just going to walk back here. And he goes, oh, yeah, yeah. And I buttoned the button. And I'm like, that was dumb. What, what am I thinking? And I told my wife that. And she said exactly what. She, what were you thinking? You know, like, and uh, I was like, I wasn't. I just wanted to be able to breathe. And, and um, it's hard to teach when you can't breathe. So anyways, that, that's my story, guys. Sorry. That's as good as it gets today. Uh, we are in the book of Matthew. If you've never been with us before, this is what we do. Uh, we take a book of the Bible. We go line by line, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and uh, we usually will do a whole chapter in one sitting, but some of the chapters in Matthew are a little longer, so we've had to cut them up, and um, that's what we did with chapter 15. That's where we're at. Now, if you uh, have never read the book of Matthew, I can make the argument, I think this is probably, if not the most important book of the Bible, it's, it's one of the most important books of the Bible, and what Matthew is, is it's a training manual for how to follow Jesus. It's the life of Jesus. Everything Jesus does is to teach literally these 12 individuals that are following him. And then in the greater sense, all of us, all of us who read the book of Matthew, we hopefully are followers of Jesus. And this book of the Bible shows us how to accomplish that. At the uh, middle point of chapter 15, when we ended last week at verse 20, there's this really interesting thing going on. So at this point in the story of, of the book of Matthew, Jesus is traveling. He never left Israel, so he's traveling all around Israel, and he's going from town to town, and he's healing people, and he's teaching, and large crowds are starting to come, and he's doing miraculous things, and he's starting to get some opposition from the religious community because the religious community had their own rules that they thought were more important than God's rules. So in chapter 15... The religious community from Jerusalem, right, which kind of would have been the headquarters, the capital, they approached Jesus and they said, hey, you and your guys don't follow our rules. And Jesus looked at them and said, you don't follow God's rules. 
So he kind of turned it back on them. And the rules that they were talking about were hand-washing ceremonies. And the, the, the argument that Jesus kind of gave in rebuttal to them, talking about why Jesus and his followers don't wash their hands a certain way, is Jesus said, it's not what your hands do that defile you. It's the state of your heart, right? So what your hands do are just a byproduct of what your heart already is. So Jesus is saying, we have to change the heart. And if you change the heart, what the hands do changes as well. So we talked about last week that if the heart doesn't change, nothing changes. We can talk about ending hatred. We can talk about changing politics. We can, change, we can talk about all these things. But until the heart of people changes, nothing changes. Uh, I'm going to take that a step further this week as we do the rest of chapter 15. I'm going to say the heart doesn't change until we're desperate. And so we're going to talk about that we have to reach a point of desperation, a point where we're on our knees begging Jesus to intervene in our life or everything's going to fall apart. We have to reach this point of desperation, okay? So if you have your Bible, we're in the first book of the New Testament, the book of Matthew. We're in chapter 15. We're going to start at verse 21. If you have a smartphone, the Experience Community app, some say it's the greatest app that's ever been created. You can download that for free. I just, I'm the only one that says that. Uh, you can download that for free. It has all the notes and um, all the scripture in there if you want to download that. You should have got a notes handout when you walked in. If you didn't, everything will be on the screens around the room, so we should be in, uh, in pretty good shape, okay? All right, I'm going to pray. Uh, we'll go. We'll read this chapter. We'll get through it really, really quick. It's pretty short, and um, see where the Lord takes us, okay? All right. Father, Lord, I just want to tell you thank you. Uh, Lord, I am, I am genuinely grateful to be in this room this morning. I'm grateful that there are brothers and sisters around me right now, friends, God, family right now around me. Thank you for everyone who's watching online, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, that we have the liberty to do what we're doing right now. And, and Father, on that note, we pray for our government. Uh, we pray for our local government. We pray, God, not just for our church, but we pray for all the churches in our city and our community. We pray, God, that you keep your hand on us, God. We pray for the great nonprofits that we work with. Pray for our school systems, Father. We, we, we have so much to pray for, God. We, we are desperate, Lord. We are in, in dire need of your help, God. Lord, keep your hand on me today as I do my best to teach. And I pray that every word, Lord, that comes out of my mouth, that it honors you. And I pray, God, that we can uh, not only hear these words, but live these words, Father. We love you. We thank you. We pray all these things in your son's name, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Matthew chapter 15, verse 21, here we go. When Jesus left there, he withdrew to the area of Tyre and Sidon. Just then, a Canaanite woman from that region came and kept crying out, have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely tormented by a demon. Jesus did not say a word to her. His disciples approached him and urged him, Send her away because she's crying out after us. He replied, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came, she knelt before him and said, Lord, help me. He answered, it isn't right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Yes, Lord, she said, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus replied to her, woman, your faith is great. 
Let it be done for you as you want. And from that moment, her daughter was healed. Okay, let me kind of set the scene here a little bit. So Jesus left. He went up the northwest coast of Israel, right, to the Mediterranean Sea, to two port cities called Tyre and Sidon. Now, these cities were kind of uh, notorious. They were not looked at as as positive places, the Jewish community would look at them as they were evil because a couple of prophets way back in the Old Testament said that they were evil, kind of condemned these areas. And I try to like use examples of places in the United States that would kind of be similar to this, but I stopped doing that because there's always someone in the room who's from one of those cities that I refer to. But let's just use our imagination for a second. Let's say there's some big cities on our west coast, right near the ocean, that were predominantly non-believers and kind of evil places. Just use your imagination for a second. Somewhere out there. And so while, while Jesus is in this area, these port cities, he meets a Gentile woman, a non-Jewish woman, okay? So here's what was going on. And by the way, my dad's from L.A., so not that that's the city I'm referring to, but my dad's from that area, so I can say that. So Jesus was in an unacceptable place getting to know an unacceptable person. And that's kind of Jesus' thing. (laughs) Going to places that people didn't want to go, talking to people that no one wanted to talk to, and that's where Jesus was in these two cities. Something bigger, though, than just Jesus hanging out in the wrong city, something bigger was taking place. After Jesus had this huge argument with the religious leaders, the Pharisees, Jesus was making a statement by going to an area that the religious community would never go to, right? An untouchable area, talking to untouchable people. So the Pharisees viewed the place, they viewed the nationality of the woman that he was talking to, and they viewed her gender as inferior, But what Jesus was showing on the greater scope of things is that Jesus didn't come for a certain color or a certain nationality or a certain gender. Jesus came for anyone willing to get to know Jesus. And so that's what Jesus is showing us in this story. So the Canaanite woman would have been viewed as the lowest of the low by the religious Jewish community. She would have been the worst of the worst. So she approaches Jesus. She is absolutely desperate because her daughter is, as she says, tormented by a demon, right? She is tormented by evil. So when she runs up to Jesus, not only is she desperate for Jesus, there are so many lessons in this, but not only is she desperate for Jesus, she says, Lord, which is a sign of submission, basically it's like saying, you're the boss, right? Lord. And then she says, son of David, Son of David was the title of the Savior, the Messiah. So look at what this woman is doing. She's desperate. She submits to Jesus and realizes Jesus is her only hope. He is the Savior, right? These are the ingredients for God to do something amazing in your life. And so at first, Jesus ignored her. He didn't talk to her. He just kept on walking, right? And the disciples hear this woman begging and making all this commotion, and they're like, hey, Jesus, why don't you get rid of her? Or let us get rid of her, right? And Jesus not only ignored her, he reminded his disciples. He, he said, I didn't come to deal with non-Jewish people. I came to deal with the Jews first, the house of Israel. So what Jesus was doing in this moment, it's not that he didn't care for this woman. 
Jesus was always teaching a lesson. And in this moment, Jesus was going to teach two things here. He was going to teach his disciples a lesson in persistence that we have to desperately run after Jesus, right? So he is teaching them, he is letting them observe this woman and how persistent she is. That's kind of lesson number one. The second lesson is kind of a foreshadowing. Jesus loved this woman. Jesus loved all the people that he had created. But Jesus came to start the gospel in Israel. That was his job. That's why he never left that region. He stayed in Israel. He spoke in the synagogues. He was there for, to, to kind of plant the seed amongst the Jewish people. And then Jesus' followers were going to go out into the rest of the world. So this Canaanite woman was going to be the responsibility of his disciples. All the people outside of Israel were going to be for his disciples to go spread the gospel to. Now we bring up a piece of theology that is often taken way out of context. A lot of Christians say from John 14, 12, that we are going to do greater miracles than Jesus. Not true. It's impossible. Well, but Corey, Jesus said you're going to do greater things than me. He did, but he was not referring to a miraculous act. Listen, whenever I hear, and I'm not trying to be a jerk, hyper-charismatic Christians say, well, we're going to do greater miracles than Jesus. Okay, hang with me here. You're going to be hung on a piece of wood for nine hours, die, be buried underground for three days, resurrect, and your blood is going to save the souls of humanity. Nope. You're never going to do anything to top that. So when Jesus said you're going to do greater things, he must have been referring to something else. The something else he was referring to was the spreading of the gospel. Jesus said, I'm going to do it in this little bitty city right here, or this little bitty region right here. You're going to take it to the entire globe. That's the greater thing that Jesus was referring to, and that's exactly what they did. And so this woman runs up. She's begging Jesus, and then Jesus turns around and says, is it right for me to take what belongs to the children and throw it to the dogs? Now, when you read that, you're like, oh, Jesus, that was kind of cold, right? That wasn't very nice. Now, to call someone a dog in, Jewish, in, in uh, Jewish history's time, just like it is today, is a very, very disrespectful thing to do. Now, what the Jewish people would do in their culture is when they referred to someone as being a dog, dogs in Jewish culture were not like dogs in American culture, right? We have dogs. I have a multi-poo, guys. It's the most ridiculous dog in the world, and she's my best friend. And she's six pounds, and like, she wears a pink collar with a heart on it with her name on it, and it's ridiculous, Right? And so I have a dog like that, and I love her very much, and I often feed her from the table, even though I'm told not to. I, I still do it, right? And so that's actually what Jesus was referring to, not my dog in particular, but Jesus was not calling her a wild, feral dog. Jesus was referring to her. Imagine this. Jesus is saying he was sent to sit at the table with the children of Israel, give them the bread of life first. And then eventually the dogs, right, the house dog, would get kind of the second helping of that. So he was basically saying, I was not sent here for you. I was sent here to spread the gospel in Israel, and then my disciples will get to you. That's what he was saying. There was still kind of a slight derogatory comment in there, but not as bad as what we often think of it to be. But here's the point of that, and this is crazy. The woman was not offended by being referred to as a dog. Do you want to know why? And some of you aren't going to take this right, but 
again, I don't care anymore. So the reason why she wasn't offended by being referred to as a dog is she knew as she stood next to the creator, she was a dog. Just like when I am in the presence of God, that's why people who understand how powerful God is, we fall down like dead men and women because in the presence of God, we are nothing. We're nothing. We should be humbled by that. But that is the key that turns the engine on, humility. And that is what we are lacking so much in our culture right now. But without humility, there is no change because without humility, we don't understand that he is the master and we are the servant. He is the creator and we are the creation. She understood it though. This non-Jewish woman who had a demon-tormented daughter, she understood, yeah, I'm a dog. I'm a dog. Compared to you, Jesus, I'm the creation. You're the creator, right? I'm down here and you are way up here. So this conversation with the Gentile woman, after she admits, she says, yes, I'm a dog. But she's basically saying, but even the master cares about the dogs like us. Woo. And Jesus says, oh, wow. You have some faith. You have great faith. So this is bigger than just a conversation between Jesus and this woman. This was starting to show that now this emphasis just on Israel was about to get much, much bigger. Jesus was showing with this woman that it's not just going to be these people here. This gospel, this good news, this salvation, this life change, it's gonna be available to everyone. So after this, it's not gonna be about who's a Jew and who's not a Jew. There are two kinds of people on planet Earth ever since Jesus walked around on it. Two kinds of people on planet Earth. It's not black or white. It's not American or foreign. It's not male or female. No, no, no. There are two kinds of people on planet Earth. There are people that follow Jesus and people who don't. Galatians 3.28, right? You're not Jew or Greek. You're not slave or free. You're not male or female. We are all one in Jesus Christ. That's where our identity lies. Here's the other thing. The professing people of God, here's where I'm going to be a jerk for a second and hurt your feelings. The professing people of God are going to miss their opportunity to be blessed by Jesus if they do not humble themselves. Now, let me tell you what I mean by that. Here we go, right? In the United States, we say we are the one nation under God. We are the Christian nation, right? God bless America. Do you know what Christianity is doing in the United States right now? It is shrinking by at least 16% every single year. Do you know what the fastest demographic of people in the United States are? In fact, 26% of them, according to a Pew Research report, are people that are complete atheists. They don't believe in anything beyond what they can see. So we, keep, we have bought into this lie that we are a Christian nation and we absolutely are not. It is shrinking. It is deteriorating. I think if you're from anywhere besides the United States right now, you're looking at us going, I thought that was the Christian nation and they're burning everything down and they all hate each other and they're doing terrible things, right? And so we often talk about how we're the ones blessed by God. Let me show you something. Do you know where Christianity is growing more than anywhere else on planet Earth right now? China. China. It's where it's growing faster than anywhere else. You know, number two is Rwanda. Growing at 13%. Vietnam, the Philippines. Do you know where it's growing at 6% per year right now? Listen, shrinking 16% a year in the United States. In Iran, it is growing 6% a year. In Iran, 
a Muslim nation that we have been at war with, Christianity is taking root there as it shrinks in the United States. But we have become so arrogant that we look at anyone else different from us and say, but they're not American. We have, oh man, I don't, I don't need to say that, do I? A lot of us have confused the Constitution and the Holy Bible, and they are not the same thing, guys. And we think that because we're Americans that we're somehow elevated beyond everyone else, just like the Pharisees in Israel when Jesus was walking around. But we're the Jews. But we're the Americans. And in, in America, Christianity is absolutely dying. In all these other places in the world that we look down on and we think are less than us, Jesus is working in miraculous ways. And until we as a people start to humble ourselves, Christianity is not going to get any better in the United States. And it says, and from that moment, so Jesus talks to this woman, right? She has this unbelievable faith. And Jesus not only complimented her faith, he said, hey, when you get back home, your daughter's gonna be okay. There'll be no more demonic oppression against her. It takes times of desperate surrender. That's when Jesus starts to work in your life. I'll harp on this more at the end, but parents, when's the last time you hit your knees for your children? God, I need you to work in the life of my family. God, I need you to work in the life of my family. My kids need you. They need to be protected by you. They need to be filled by you. They need to be touched by you. When is the last time? But do you know what we often do? We blame the church for not discipling our children, and I'm gonna break it to you. It's not the church's job to disciple your children. You're the one responsible for your children. You're the one responsible for praying for your children. You're the one responsible for raising your children. You're the one responsible for, for ra or not raising, but, but uh, discipling and, and war working with your spouse. You're the one responsible for your home. It's not me. It's not my staff. It's you. We're here to help you. We're here to be a supplement, right? To, to kind of walk along with you as a family. But at the end of the day, your marriage is your marriage. Your family is your family. And you're the one that's going to have to answer to God for those things. When's the last time you got on your knees for your kids? When's the last time you got on your knees for your neighbor? When's the last time you got on your knees for your spouse? When's the last time you did that, right? And complete, utter desperation for God to move in their lives. Let's keep moving. Moving on from there, Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee. He went up on a mountain and sat there, and large crowds came to him, including the lame, the blind, the crippled, those unable to speak, and many others. They put them at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. So the crowd was amazed when they saw those unable to speak, talking, the crippled, restored, the lame, walking, the blind, seeing, and they gave glory to the God of Israel. So those people, right, from that region that shouldn't have been blessed by God were getting blessed by God. Like we were just talking about with China and Iran and Vietnam and the Philippines, Rwanda, places like that, right? So if you were with me a couple of weeks ago, Jesus went into his hometown, right, of Nazareth. Those were the people of God. Those were Jewish people. He went into his, he went into his hometown and he was rejected by his own people. They didn't want to have anything to do with him because he didn't look the way that they wanted him to look and he didn't act the part that they wanted him to act. So now Jesus goes to an area on the other side of the tracks that no one wanted to go to. And he attracts large crowds that came to him and they were amazed because they were laying everything at his feet and he was healing and he was saving and he was fixing and he was teaching. 
And these people were polytheists, which means they had a multiplicity of gods. They believed in all kinds of gods. But when they saw the power of the true God, they said, that must be the real thing. Do you know what that means in our lives, right? It doesn't mean you need to go around like doing miraculous things for everyone. But when you share with people how God has changed you, when you share with people the wonderful things that God has done in your life, people see the power of God. And eventually some people will say that it must be their God that is the correct God. I got a buddy that comes to this church. We, I've known him for a long time. I actually knew him before he was a Christian. His name's Derek, and I don't want to embarrass him, but I used to talk to him in the gym a long time ago when I actually went to a place called a gym, but a long time ago, and I would talk to Derek, and I remember before he was a Christian, he was one of the biggest jerks. I just didn't like the guy at all. And one day, I'm, I'm working out, and Derek comes over to me and he goes, hey, you know any good worship bands? And I was like, come again, what? Because this guy was such a jerk, and I, he had a reputation for selling drugs in town and getting in all kinds of trouble and all this stuff, and I was like, worship bands, you say? What? And he's like, yeah, you know, I started going to this little church. He comes to church here now, but started going to this little church and he got saved and and God had moved in his life and his complete demeanor had changed. Now he's married and has a beautiful child and like doing great, been coming here for years. But I was at a car show a couple of weeks ago talking to this dude, man, that like, he was a rough dude, rough dude, super rough dude. I was at this car show and he goes, I know Derek. And we got to talking about Derek and and this guy who's super rough and like cussing up a storm and had like a cigarette between every you know finger. He's just like sitting there talking. And, and he goes, man, Derek told me about your church and what's happened. And dude, Derek's a different dude. And I'm like, yeah, he's a different guy. But you could see that this guy was intrigued by his old friend Derek having this miraculous change, right? You gotta tell people your stories. That's the moral of this. You gotta tell people about what God has done in your life because when people see the transformative power of God, they might start to give glory to God. They might be intrigued by it and want to know more. Not all people, but a lot of people. Not everyone is looking for the truth, but for the ones who are looking for the truth, we have to be living out our faith. Let me me tell you what that means. That means if you come here and you say, man, I love the Experience Community Church, hashtag the Experience Community Church, and you put all this stuff on your Facebook, and then you go to work and you treat everyone like jerks, I I would rather you just not associate yourself with us. Because what happens is, is when we all walk around with our Instagram pics about how Christian we are, and then we act like jerks out in the world, or we gossip and lie and swindle and do all these other things, right? We're not living out our faith. That's not a good witness. So we have to be living out our faith. We have to be praying for other people. We have to be telling people about Christ and what Christ has done in our lives. Why? Because that's our job, We are the ones called to do the greater things that Jesus talked about, right? To spread the gospel to the entire world, our world, Murfreesboro, Smyrna, right? Laverne, Antioch, Woodbury, College Grove, places like that. We're called to spread the gospel. Last part, it's an appetizing picture. (laughs) Jesus called his disciples and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they've already stayed with me three days and have nothing to eat. I don't want to send them away hungry. Otherwise, they might collapse on the way. The disciples said to him, where could we get enough bread in this desolate place to feed such a crowd? How many loaves do you have? This sounds familiar, doesn't it? Seven, they said, and a few small fish. After commanding the crowd to sit down on the ground, 
He took the seven loaves and the fish. He gave thanks. He broke them, gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. They all ate and were satisfied. They collected the leftover pieces, seven large baskets full. Now there were 4,000 men who had eaten, besides women and children. After dismissing the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. So this story sounds really familiar. If you've ever heard the story of the feeding of the 5,000, but now we have 4,000. And when you read the miraculous feeding of the 4,000, it sounds just like the miraculous feeding of the 5,000. Now, if you weren't here with me, it wasn't 5,000 or 4,000. You notice it didn't include the women and children. So it would have been somewhere in the neighborhood, this 4,000 probably was somewhere in the neighborhood of about 12,000 people, a lot of people. So these were the same people that were following him in the last section that I just read. They had been following around Jesus for three or four days now. They hadn't eaten because they're just kind of running on adrenaline because they're seeing Jesus save people and heal people and they're hearing all these amazing teachings from Jesus. So again, just like the other situation, except for one major difference. The feeding of the 5,000, all those people were Jewish the feeding of the 4,000, all of them were non-Jewish. So Jesus looked at this non-Jewish crowd and he said, they're hungry. They got to eat. He had already given them spiritually what they needed, but now they needed food, right? They needed to eat. So Jesus wanted to take care of them physically. They're on the point of almost collapsing even. So here's what we see. Jesus, of course, wants you to be spiritually fed. Jesus also wants you to be taken care of in your day-to-day life, right? It even says earlier on in the book of Matthew, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. That means God knows that you need to work. God knows that you need to provide. God even knows that you need to rest. That's why our walk of faith is not referred to as a sprint. It's referred to as a marathon. You have to find a rhythm, You have to have times where you're quiet and at peace and alone and where you get to rest and Sabbath and recharge. God knows that. So he said, everyone sit down, right? You're gonna gonna pass out. We're gonna get some food for you. Now here's what's interesting, right? If you're a disciple of Jesus, recently you saw Jesus feed 15,000 people miraculously. Now this isn't even 15,000, this is 12,000, it's less. But then they look at Jesus and they're like, Where can we get food for them, Jesus? We have some bread and we have some fish. And did they forget? Did they forget that Jesus had already done this exact same thing, even on a bigger scale? Now, there's two possibilities. The first one is, is yes, they forgot. When I say they forgot, they were humans just like us. And even though this is important, they had seen Jesus do a big miracle over time. We forget that Jesus does big miracles. It's a lot of us, right? So that's possibility number one. Possibility number two is this. Now, here's where it hurts your feelings a little bit, and mine too, is they didn't think that God would do a miracle for those people like he does a miracle for our people. These were non-Jews, right? It's, oh man. It's like people who are from the United States saying, well, those Mexicans, right? We don't want those people coming over here. God doesn't love those. I know you're not saying that, but you're just thinking it. God doesn't love those people as much as he loves us. We're Americans. That's where the disciples were. And they were wrong. And guys, let me tell you this. We're wrong. 
when we look at anyone else and don't think that they're made in the same image of the God that we're made in the image of. We are all made in the image of God, right? And so God blessed these non-Jews the exact same way he blessed the Jews. The results of the feeding of the 4,000 Gentiles was exactly the same as the miracle that happened with the 5,000 Jews. Do you know what the, the commonality between the groups were? They were both hungry. They both wanted Jesus. They both wanted to be next to him. They both wanted to listen to him. Jesus didn't care what side of the tracks they were on. Jesus didn't care what color skin they were. Jesus didn't even care about the mistakes they had made in the past. He cared about their willingness to want to know him. Do you want to know why? And this is a very offensive scripture. There is no favoritism with God. God doesn't love us any more than he loves the Muslims that are over in Iran right now who are getting a revelation about Jesus Christ as we speak. He loves them just as much as he loves us. They are made in the exact same image that we are made in. We somehow think, though, and again, that's why I think Christianity is declining in the United States. Why? Because the Bible says that God steps away from the proud and he draws near to the humble. And when we have a culture that is just arrogant as all get out, it's no wonder why Christianity is declining at rapid rates in our country. There is no favoritism with God. All people who are willing to have a relationship with God, God wants to have a relationship with them. Anyone that wants to know God, God wants to know them. He's knocking on the heart, James says, and anyone who's willing to open up the door, Jesus comes in and he eats with them, it says in James. That's what he is looking for. People who are hungry, even us dogs. <laughs> even us dogs. Let me tell you where it all begins, guys. It all begins with acknowledging that we are not the center of the universe. Do you know what all of you have been force-fed and lied to about? This idea of individualism. That it's all about you, right? That's why TikTok is so big. That's why Instagram is so big. That's why Facebook is so big. That's why all this social media is so big. Because it's our platform for saying to the world that I am the center of everything, right? It's my music playlist. It's all my ideas. Man, social media is just a cesspool, right? Here's my ideas on this and this and this, right? I have no degree and I, you know, work in Walmart's storage thing, but here's my thoughts on science and here's my thoughts on religion and here's my thoughts on all these things that I really have no, no idea how to speak on, but it's all about me and everything is relative to me. So whenever Christians pick up the Bible, Christians, they read it and they say, well, I know Jesus said that, but that's not what it says to me. Listen, I don't care what it says to you. Jesus' intent is Jesus' intent. And it doesn't matter if I like it or not. Why? Because the universe doesn't center around Corey Trimble and it doesn't center around you either. It centers around him. And here's the thing. We have this mantra in our culture right now. Well, I found myself. Well, then you are screwed because the Bible does not tell you to find you. The Bible tells you to lose you and find him. So this whole mantra of I found me, man, you're toast. You're in bad shape. And listen, we can never be a Christian if we are pursuing self. It is completely anti-Christ. Those who lose their lives will find it, right? Those who lose their lives for my sake, Jesus says, will find it. We're searching for the wrong thing. The key that turns the engine on is realizing that we're not the most important thing in the universe. And Jesus and his word show us over and over and over again, though. 
Here's what's ironic about a relationship with God. When we realize that he's greater than us, he blesses us in a way that we can never return, right? Regardless of our past, regardless of where we're from, regardless of the color of our skin, regardless of our gender, right? None of those things negate us from having an experience with God. And it's when we find our identity in him, right? That's when we truly find out who we are in relation to the creator, I say this all the time. You're not made in the image of your color of your skin or your nationality or your gender or your bank account or any of the other things that you're told to pursue. You are made in the image of God. That's from the very beginning of the Bible, the genesis of creation, right? You are the only thing made in the image of God. That's where your identity is found. Do you know another thing that we often do? Is like the disciples, we either think that God won't bless other people the way he blesses us or... In times of trouble, right? In times of trouble, we forget that God has pulled us out of the ditch before. Am I the only one that does this? Man, God has saved me so many times, right? He has provided for me miraculously so many times. He has healed me so many times. He has done so many things in my life. And then when trouble comes and when uh, uh, turbulence comes and tribulation comes and tough times come, we're like, oh God, where are you? We're all gonna fall apart. And God, you you know what? God never leads us into a valley of failures. God never leads us into a place to where he's gonna let us sink. God is faithful, but we forget about that. God has has delivered all of us, if you're a believer in here. God has done so much for us that we don't even recognize how much he's done for us. But whenever the pressure gets turned on a little bit, we like forget it. Do you know what they used to do in the Old Testament? Whenever God would do something miraculous for the people of God, they would set up monuments, right? So there was multiple times in the Bible when, when God split a body of water and people walked across the body of water, right? One of them was at the Jordan. And so once they got to the other side, it says that the people of God built a monument, right? They got a bunch of stones and they built a monument. Now, why is that important? It's important because one day a grandfather would be walking around with his grandchildren and say, hey, you see that pile of rocks? That reminds me of the time that I walked on dry land across that river because God provided a means for us. Now, maybe in our lives, I know we don't need to build rocks every time, just building rocks wherever God does something in your life. Maybe we need to journal it, though. Maybe we need to write it down. Maybe we need to put it somewhere. Maybe we need to make a collection of cards that we stick in a file cabinet, and whenever times get tough and we feel like we're alone, we can pull out the stack of cards and go, man, God, you provided for me there and there and there and there. And what happens is, as mature Christians, we look back on our life, and God has built a reputation for never failing us. Can he do it again? Yes, he can do it again. You think this is the first time the world has been through some garbage? Man, the world has been through worse garbage than what we're going through now. And God has come through in those times, and he's been faithful to his followers in those times. He can do it again. But we have to reach a point of desperation. Guys, when is the last time, when is the last time you hit your knees? I'm, I'm talking about literally, literally, in the posture of, of hitting your knees. When is the last time you have done that? When is the last time you have been on your knees and said, God, if you don't step into my marriage, I don't know what's going to happen. 
God, I am desperate. My children, Lord, they go to school every day and they face all kinds of temptations. I got a daughter going into sixth grade, right? And the things that she was exposed to in fifth grade, boys looking at porn on their phones in fifth grade, 10-year-olds, 11-year-olds, guys, your kids, man, the world is vicious. Now, I don't say that so you can be a weirdo and not let your kids interact with anyone. No, 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 no. You need to disciple your children and let your children go out as disciples into those schools to let them bring the light out into the world. Don't isolate yourselves. I say this all the time, insulate yourselves. But the only way to insulate yourself with the Holy Spirit is we gotta hit our knees. We fight not against flesh and blood. Our war is not fought with politicians. Our war is not fought with weapons. Our war is not fought with social media. We fight not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and forces of darkness. And the only way to fight the forces of darkness, on your knees. Stop pointing the finger at everyone else and what they're doing wrong and hit your knees. Do you know what's more advantageous than getting on Facebook and talking about how bad your mayor or your president or your governor or your pastor or whoever else, you know what's more advantageous than that is praying for those people. But hey, that's just the Bible. That's just Romans chapter 13, but I'm sorry about that. Anyways, listen. Instead of identifying the problem, because any idiot can say there's a problem, it takes a Christian to hit their knees and then pray for the gift of wisdom and discernment and knowledge to come up with some biblical solutions. Stop blaming the school system for your children and take responsibility. Hit your knees and say, God, I'm desperate. Stop blaming the church for your marriage and say, God, I'm desperate. Stop blaming your parents for the sins that you commit and say, I want to own my own life. And God, I'm desperate. We need to hit our knees. When is the last time you completely surrendered, right? God, you got all of it. You have my sexuality. You have my wallet. You have my home. You have my family. You have my hopes and desires. When's the last time you cried out, Lord, which is submission to him saying, you're the boss. Regardless of how I feel, regardless of what I want, you're in control. You're the boss. When's the last time you hit your knees? Lord, I need your help. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Man, I love you guys so much. We overcomplicate it. We, we, humanity has such a knack for, for, for complicating simple things. If you want to know the answer to your problem right now, it is Jesus Christ. That's it. But it's this, it's this, it's this. Corey, you don't know. You're right, I don't know. God knows. Jesus knows. And do you know what it takes? I don't care what you're going through right now, and I'm not trying to be insensitive. I'm gonna tell you the greatest thing you can do for yourself, for your family, for your marriage, for your neighbors. When's the last time you cried out for your neighbors? 
When's the last time it broke your heart that people around you don't have a relationship with Jesus? When's the last time? Ever? Guys, when did Christians become so unempathetic? When did we stop loving people? I'm not trying to be political or whatever, but as your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, a couple years back when all the immigration talk was happening, we would talk about people from other nations like they weren't even human. A very good friend of mine's wife crossed the border illegally 11 years ago because she had a kid that she couldn't provide for, and she just wanted hope. In the Christian nation, and instead of being welcomed, it was, send these dogs back. What has happened to us that we look at people different from us and we hate them and we don't wish the best for them? How have we gotten so divided? How have we become so arrogant? It's because we have become a people that have not hit their knees. We have not submitted ourselves and put ourselves on the ground face first. We haven't laid it down. We haven't laid our hatred down at the foot of Jesus. We haven't laid our fear down at the foot of Jesus. We haven't laid our insecurities and our addictions and our selfishness. We have not laid those things at the feet of Jesus. And because we haven't trusted Jesus, because we haven't submitted and surrendered to him, we are broken people. So I invite you today, if you're in this room and, and maybe you're not a believer, maybe you have questions, Pastor Muhammad is right over here to my right, your left. If you have any questions, come up here and talk to Pastor Muhammad. If you need prayer for anything, we have men and women up here that would love to pray for you. They all have masks on. If you want them to stay six feet away, that's fine. But they just want to pray for you. The last thing, guys, is we have communion. You should have got communion when you walked in. That represents the body and blood of Jesus Christ. That is a very sacred thing. That represents that, as Paul said, even while we were still sinners, God sent his only son to die for us. And it is not his will that any perish. That's what the word says. It's not God's will that any go to hell. Regardless of where you're from or what you've done, it is not, it's not God's desire for any to perish. And if we will ask God, if we will humble ourselves today, ask God to forgive us. And man, I'm ending a couple of minutes early. So you, I, I would ask you, literally hit your knees today. You got plenty of room in here today. Hit a knee and say, Lord, I just want to give you everything. Forgive me, God. And we can take the body and blood of Jesus and remember how much he loves us. Father, God, I love you. Lord, I love you so much. God, I love the men and women in this room. I love the people watching, Father. Forgive me, God, that I haven't hit my knees as much as I should. That I let anger get a hold of me, God, in fear. Lord, humble us, Father. Humble us as individuals. Humble us as a people. We love you, and we know that you, you love us, God. Keep your hand on us, Jesus. Let us be desperate for you. We pray all these things, Father, in your, in your son's precious name, God, the only name that saves us and changes us. In Jesus' name.
Amen. You guys are welcome to help yourself. Thank you guys so much. Love you guys.